0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagara and Turrbal land. Today, the health and environmental cost of red and processed meats...
1: Using your mobile phone to detect abnormal heart rhythms, it may be as accurate as fancier and more expensive technologies. And, Tegan, you might be amazed to hear that Australia has abandoned its reliance on American data to predict the risk of heart attacks and strokes. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Yeah, indeed. Because for years, well, many, probably decades, in fact, we've used the health, heart health and risk factors known from the population of Framingham in Massachusetts. Some people say Framingham. Um, and we in Australia have used the Framingham data, which has followed multi-generations of people in this town, um, whether they still live in the town or have moved away, and looked at whether you know the relationship between cholesterol, smoking, exercise, and other things. And they've come up with an equation which Australian doctors have been using for a long time to predict your chances of a heart attack or stroke over the next five. Or ten years. Well,
0: is this just Australians that use this, or is it all over the world that these data sets use?
1: That's a very good question, which we will ask Gary Jennings in a moment. <laughs> Gary Jennings is uh, chief medical officer or chief medical advisor to the Heart Foundation because the Heart Foundation has abandoned the Framingham, what are called the Framingham equations, which they claim left out key variables that could make a big difference to risk detection. I mean, the problem here is you could either be over-diagnosed and say you are at risk when you're not, or missed and say you're not at risk when you are. And you wouldn't need to be Einstein to realise, Tegan, that the American population is very different from the Australian. Mm. Gary, welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. So what, what was the... Have I accurately reflected the problem with the Framingham data?
2: Uh, certainly. Look, two things. Uh, one, there's no better time to have a have a good look at what's happening with cardiovascular disease because um, we've just got data out in the last month or so from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that says that for decades heart disease, coronary heart disease rates have been dropping in deaths and and um, and heart attacks, but that's been arrested since 2020. So uh, we certainly needed to do a little bit better. So we've stalled. The Yeah, we've stalled. And uh, uh, we do know that the Framingham based calculator overestimated risk in people with low, uh, in communities with low. Uh, risk of heart disease and it underestimated risk in 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 people that have got uh, live in communities got high risk so uh, we did need to have another look and at 60 years old you know people were thin and smoking and having heart attacks in those days nowadays it's a it's a different profile
1: so you used a study from new zealand and adapted it to the australian situation how does the new so to explain to people this is really a calculator you feed in your data and it punches out uh, to stay whether or not you're at high risk, intermediate risk over the next five years, or low risk. Um, How how much do the data change that you punch into this calculator?
2: Uh, qu- quite a bit it's not more than a calculator it's a calculator that sits within a guideline so it tells you what to do, who are the right people to do it in uh, and and afterwards how to interpret those results and what other factors you might uh, you might consider but it it uses a lot of the the uh, the very familiar risk factors like age and and blood pressure and and cholesterol and Uh, sex and whether you smoke or not but it adds a few uh, quite a few other things which were not available in the previous uh, one particularly kidney associated risks uh, whether you're on medications um, uh, social uh, status history of atrial fibrillation which you'll be talking about later so so it's it's got more information going in and we'd hope that gives a better result coming out
1: and mental health
2: issues mental health issues we know is absolutely key um the problem with some of these things that i've talked about though is it's hard to put a number to them we know they're important and so what this uh, this guideline says is use the calculator and wherever it takes you uh, then the clinician can consider with the with the person in front of them the influence of something like mental health um and and other factors
1: and postcode but but you don't seem to include bmi body mass index
2: No, body mass index is a really interesting one. And it's it's clearly important, there's no question. Um, Actually, you'd be surprised to know that the data relating BMI to to overall death rates um, uh, is is a little bit controversial. And the problem there is that BMI comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with uh, blood pressure and and, and, uh, abnormalities and lipid metabolic abnormalities. And a lot of those, if they're already in the equation, Account for the effects of BMI. So just because something's not in the calculator doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that we've got other ways of getting that uh, information into the into the um, uh, the balance. And you're also
1: more nuanced about how you add in diabetes to the risk.
2: Yes, uh, we used to be very binary about diabetes. We either said uh, if you had it, you're at high risk of cardiovascular disease. If you if you haven't got it, you're not. Uh, what the New Zealand data showed is that there is a spectrum amongst people with diabetes. There are people at relatively low risk, and so what's been developed has been a an, a, a sub equation. Uh, where you can put extra information, particularly about kidney um, function and other things into uh, to add to, your, to the discrimination in people with diabetes. It's probably much more accurate in, di- in people with diabetes than what we've been using.
1: So have you been able to compare the outcomes from doing this risk score versus the Framingham? I mean, to what extent is it more accurate in predicting your chances over the next five years?
2: Well, that of course will take time because we've got to wait five years to see what see what happens. but um, everything we've done as far as modeling and testing it in a, in a pilot sense and and of course experience from the from the New Zealand use of this is that it is more accurate. Um, but we know there's lots of new technologies on the way. There's polygenic risk and there's you know, various other more sophisticated markers. There's um, various imaging techniques like calcium scoring. And they've been taken into account, but they're not in the, in the equation itself at this point. So who gets it? Who gets it? Or
1: who should um, get it?
2: Yeah, look, this, this is uh, targeted specifically to pe- everybody aged 45 to 79 because that's the age range at which we know if you you can identify people that uh, um, uh, are at very high or very high-low risk of an event in the near future. Uh, it's a little bit younger for people with diabetes. It's 35 to 79 and even younger for people uh, of First Nations um, uh, uh, culture who um, who uh, are recommended from the age of 30 or even even for individuals from the age of, of 18. So um, it's a matter of getting it to the right people and then, uh, and then using it appropriately. Time is short in
1: general practice. You've added a lot of variables. Is this going to take the GP longer to do?
2: So far, the GPs have been, um, been pretty comfortable with this. It is a concern, of course, um, and they've got plenty of else on their plate um but so far it it looks all right we've got a very nice um uh algorithm up on cvdrisk.org.au which um which which gps have been trying and um, uh as far as we can see they're pretty happy with it so far it does need to be embedded in their software so it's not not a separate website they need to go to it's just something that comes up in the course of the day (laughs) and then much of much of the stuff thing can be auto populated so they don't have to put it in.
1: So can people do it for themselves?
2: Uh, they can but it's very it's very much designed for um, uh, health professionals uh, what it does have and this is new too is a point at which we would anticipate the clinician will turn the screen towards the um, the patient or person and uh, and then start to discuss what it means what they should do about it uh, and present the the findings in the various kind of ways that are uh, Uh, understandable and acceptable to to, to that person.
1: But I suppose one of the things, if you go in yourself um, as a non-medical person, you'll see the tests that your GP is supposed to be doing on you just to check your risk and you could ask for them.
2: Yes, that's, that's right. Uh, and look, it's going to be key in, in making this work because it needs to be scaled. Uh, there's 8 million people, Australians, in the sort of categories I said that need this kind of testing. And if it's going to be used properly, then people have to have a better understanding of the importance of, uh, of uh, having their risk assessed and, and doing something about it. CVD.org.au uh, CVDcheck.org.au Gary, thank
1: you for joining us yet again on The Health Report. Thank you. Professor Gary Jennings is Chief Medical Advisor to the Heart Foundation. One of the risk factors for heart attacks, strokes, heart failure and death is an abnormal heart rhythm and Gary just mentioned atrial fibrillation. The trouble with abnormal heart rhythms though is that they're complicated, there's many of them and they can come and go and be easily missed. That's why cardiologists sometimes do extended observations with a device called a Holter monitor, which you carry around with you or operates by telemetry, um, but through chest chest leads. It's cumbersome, expensive, and even if done for a few days straight, may not detect an arrhythmia. Now, a study by clinicians and researchers at Westmead Hospital and the University of Sydney has compared a simple finger electrode linked to your mobile phone with Holter monitoring. Sam Turnbull was one of the researchers. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you for having me. So who did you study? What sort of people?
3: Uh, We studied a variety of people. Um, This was a three-part study. Uh, Part one looked at patients who were undergoing procedures uh, to treat arrhythmias. Part two looked at patients in hospital under cardiac monitoring. And part three was a randomized control trial where we looked at patients who were having symptoms that uh, were potentially caused by arrhythmias.
1: So, in a sense, you looked at high-risk situations where you knew an arrhythmia was likely down to a more common or garden situation where you didn't know whether the person was having an abnormal heart rhythm or not. Uh,
3: that's right, yes. Um, but there were certainly some uh, patients in our randomized control trial um, where it was possible that it was gun variety uh, symptoms, as you say, um, and they did need investigations to find a diagnosis uh, for their symptoms.
1: So to describe this device, because it, for a standard ECG, electrocardiograph, you need 12 leads on your chest. This is called a single lead ECG. You just put your fingers on it, or one or two fingers.
3: Yes, that's right. So just like our 12 lead ECG is made up of 12 unique vectors, uh, this ECG is made up of a single one between our left and right arm. Uh, it's So to, just to explain,
1: exact- when you say vector, um, when... You, a doctor reads an ECG or a nurse reads an ECG. It's actually the, the you know, it's the direction of the electrical activity that's picked up, and you, you you can then trace that back to the part of the heart where the um, the problem may arise if it's a heart attack or or an arrhythmia, and um, and so it's literally a vector. It's a it's a direction of the electrical activity.
3: Yes, that's right. And this this device uh, is identical to one of those vectors that we have in our twelve lead ECG. Um, it's just been in a compact handheld form that you can carry around in your pocket.
1: And when you what? And the idea is when you feel a funny symptom in your chest, you put your fingers on it.
3: Yes. Um, so these this is not just this device, uh, which is, you know, the the core device. This is the same technology that we have. In uh, watches that are capable of recording a heart rhythm, and in our tr- in our trial, we had patients recording their heart rhythm whenever they had symptoms, uh, but we also got them to do routine recordings of their heart rhythm so that we could screen for arrhythmias that they were asymptomatic to.
1: In other words, they were having an arrhythmia but didn't know it. And what did you find?
3: Uh, we found that the d- the results were comparable between the call and our standard of care Holter monitoring.
1: Now, when you say equivalent, we're not just talking about atrial fibrillation, which is a pretty crude arrhythmia to find. Some can be really quite difficult in their abnormalities of the conducting tissue in the heart and so on. And you can get very complex arrhythmias. Did it pick up the other ones as well?
3: We did have a variety of arrhythmias picked up uh, throughout the study. And we were also able to establish what we call a symptom rhythm correlation between um, patients experiencing palpitations or a racing heartbeat um, and documenting their rhythm at the time, which in not all cases was an arrhythmia.
1: So how did it change the treatment, if, if at all, or was it simply just the, the it was easier to make the diagnosis?
3: A lot of it is about it being easier to achieve a diagnosis and the increased accessibility that patients have Uh, through using these devices as opposed to requiring uh, resources from their cardiologist, hospital or GP practice. Um, The patients can uh, monitor themselves or have these devices long-term or indefinitely and continue to record each time they have symptoms. And if they achieve a diagnosis or achieve potentially an abnormal recording, we can then go on to validate that through further testing um, at a healthcare facility or if it's clear-cut, then we can look at uh, treatment options now one of or the management options.
1: Did you measure the psychological response to this? Because one of the responses could be, well, either you feel more reassured because you're doing it, or it could increase health anxiety because every time you feel something wrong, you're going to go to the phone and put your fingers on the device and watch it anxiously. So you, you could actually raise anxiety. Uh, do, do you measure that?
3: Yeah, it absolutely could. Uh, we didn't measure specifically cardiac anxiety scored, but we did investigate, um, we did do a survey uh, asking patients about their sense of empowerment, and our results from our trial demonstrated that the majority of patients felt significantly more empowered um, in the arm um, that had the alive core as compared to the arm that received the HALT monitor. So who pays for this? So these devices can be bought by anyone. You can purchase it off the internet. Uh, And alternatively, it's not just the AliveCore devices. You could do this on a watch that you can pick up from your local tech store or order online. Some clinicians provide them to their patients um, as part of their practice. Uh, But it it does come down to discussion between clinician and patient to determine how to investigate a patient's symptoms and how to manage their Care.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see how the care changes over time, and I think you're doing a further study on that. We'll catch up with you when you've done it. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sam Turnbull, who's at the University of Sydney's Westmead Applied Research Centre. And you're listening to the Health Report here on RN.
0: processed meats are a big part of the Australian economy and our diets, but they have an environmental cost and an impact on our health. This month, the World Health Organisation has released a report scoping the role of red and processed meats in healthy diets and sustainable food systems. It's a big step for the global peak body on health to bring together the environmental and human health evidence of these foods. Two of the authors, both from Deakin University, are Kate Sievert and Gary Sachs, who join us now. Kate, I'll start with you. What does Australia consume and export? Because I thought red meat consumption was slowing down in Australia.
4: Um, it is. It's, it's plateauing. But uh, importantly, there are other countries that are increasing their red meat consumption. And Australia plays a big role in providing red meat to those countries. So about 70% of all meat, uh, meat that we produce here in Australia is actually exported overseas.
0: Oh, so in addition to our big consumption, there's a, just a huge volume. Our,
4: yes. In addition to our very high uh, red and processed meat consumption, Yes.
0: And Gary, listeners of The Health Report are pretty well versed in this, but just remind us what the health impacts of red meat and processed meats are.
5: Sure. So processed meat... Has a link to cancer and particularly colorectal cancer, um, and and red and processed meat together um, also contribute to cardiovascular disease. Um, and also, if you think about the way that uh, red meat is produced, um, that can, if if they use antibiotics, that can contribute to antimicrobial resistance. Um, and also, depending on how how the red meat is produced, it can um, lead to those zoonotic diseases, so so diseases found in animals can transfer over to humans, um, like with COVID.
0: That's kind of, I mean, we don't want those things, but that's sort of worst case scenarios. Is there not a place for red meat in terms of healthy, healthy diets?
5: Yeah, that's right. So it, it does depend on how much you're having. So when we talk about risk of, of red meat consumption, it's really diets that are high in red meat um, then increase your risk of those, those diseases I mentioned before. Um, although with processed meat, um, the recommendation is to avoid them altogether.
0: Kate, you were the lead on the WHO reports, quite extensive. Can you talk us through the provenance of of it, why, why they've chosen to, to take this double-pronged view now?
4: Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that food systems' um, impact on human health and planetary health are uh, incredibly interlinked. And so for WHO, you know, beginning to take a position on red and, and processed meat Really needs to reflect their approach to one health, which where they incorporate human health, environmental health, and animal health. And so, um, I think we may see this increasingly with the guidance that WHO provides, you know, incorporating sustainability as part of, you know, healthy diets from sustainable food systems, given all the overlapping, uh, dimensions, uh, will be increasingly important moving forward.
0: But they haven't, this is really just a scoping paper, they haven't put in any consumption guidelines yet.
4: They have not, um, yes, important to note, they have not provided any consumption guidelines as part of this brief, um, but it is a first step for them in developing uh, those uh, consumption guidelines. So that's the direction that they're moving toward. I mean, Gary, we do have guidelines
0: in Australia around intake of red and processed meat, what does this add or what what does the science and evidence around this add that we're not taking into consideration at the moment here?
5: Well, you're right. The dietary guidelines for Australia do uh, have a recommendation of, um, I think it's 500 grams of, of red and processed meat per week. Um, but those guidelines don't take into account environmental sustainability in any great way. And also, if uh, if you look at Australian policy in this area, a- apart from the dietary guidelines which have that red and processed meat you should be having. There so are other policies at all that actually seek to cut down how much Australians are, are eating. And so I think from a policy point of view, this is really highlighting that this needs to be um, a focus for governments if they, try, if they want to improve the health of the population as well as the, the environment.
0: What sort of policies should they consider, we consider?
5: There's a range of policies that could be put in place here, um, mostly around the food system and the way that food is produced um, and, and incentivising um, the production of um, plant, plant foods um, and, and less incentives for farmers to grow, grow meat, if I could say that. Um, but but there, there may also be things like um, taxes both applying at, at farmers or suppliers as well as at the consumer level um, that could be considered.
0: Kate, Aussies love, we love meat here. Like you say, we're big um, producers of it. You've studied food systems and people's attitudes around this. What kind of response do you expect from the Australian public when you start asking people to, to think about cutting back on this?
4: Yeah, uh, it's an emotional response, I would anticipate, which makes sense. It's a big part of Australian culture. A lot of Australian, uh, foods, uh, um, center around meat. I mean, you can think of the Aussie meat pie. Um, and so I think the, the way we communicate this, you know, the findings of this, um, report, but also, you know, of all the evidence around red and processed meat is, you know, there is a way to be eating red meat and, you know, small amounts of processed meat in a healthy and sustainable diet. We, we don't need to be advocating for all vegan diets, but we do need to think about eating less. Um, and maybe substituting some of that red meat intake with some other meats or also legumes, beans, um, or the, you know, those tasty, healthy foods that, um, can provide a lot of those same nutrients. So, um, yeah, important to note, we're not saying you can't eat it at all. Um, but we do need to reconcile that moving forward, if we want to have particularly more environmentally friendly, um, Diets. We will need to eat less. Can, is
0: it a bit unfair to be lumping all red meat in together with all processed meat? Gary, can you talk about the difference in the health risks associated with, say, something that's fresh and cooked well, and and that sort of thing, versus something that might be highly processed, very shelf stable, a lot of a lot of salt.
5: So yes, there is a clear difference between processed meat and red meat. So with processed meat, there's a very clear link to cancer risk. And so that's why the recommendations is to avoid processed meat as much as possible. Uh, Whereas with red meat, it's more about high consumption. So if, if Diets that are high in red meat um, is is where the the health risks kick in, and so that's why really there's no one saying to eliminate red meat entirely um, because the evidence doesn't doesn't back that up. but when when you're starting to consume um, more than, say, half a kilogram per week, that's that's when the evidence shows that your risks of cardiovascular disease and and cancer and and other diseases really starts to ramp up.
0: What about the difference in how you cook it? Because we know that like char grilling meat has um, has effects that can increase your risk of cancer. What about slow cooking?
5: You're right, the, the way it's cooked can make a difference. Um, but I think the main focus is, is really on the amount you're eating and and that's where the evidence is, is much stronger, where, where diets that are high in red meat, no matter how it's cooked, um, do have these adverse health consequences.
0: Kate, can we talk about what the alternatives are then? Because if we are eating a lot, of red and processed meats as a country and we're exporting a lot um, globally. What fills the gap if we're trying to cut back on those foods and, and what are the environmental impacts of those foods?
4: So there are a range of foods that um, we can substitute Um I would say the thing that uh, would be of most benefit would be replacing it with minimally processed plant-based foods. We know that, for example, substituting beef products with beans can reduce carbon emissions by around 334 million metric tons, which um, sounds like a lot. But people may also choose to substitute with uh, chicken or fish, which both have a much lower environmental impact. But I will say, for those foods, you know, they aren't without risk. So a lot of chicken is produced in what's probably colloquially known as factory farms. And that uh, increases the risk for, as Gary mentioned earlier, antimicrobial resistance and zoonotic diseases. So making sure that uh, what we substitute our foods with are also produced in an environmentally friendly way, Is key here. There are also some meat analogues which are coming on into the food supply. We don't have a lot of data about what those environmental and health impacts will be. Do you you mean like
0: like sort of imitation meat, like vegan options or lab-grown meat? Yes, so
4: both. So plant-based meat imitations, like uh, we can see Uh, some of those on the market at the moment, but also cellular-based meat, uh, which is still pretty new to the food supply. So we don't have a lot of data yet about what role they will play, but I would note that plant-based meat imitations are what we would consider an ultra-processed food, so probably aren't the best health alternative and and they're quite high in sodium as well. So they're not quite a nutritional match for uh, minimally processed meat. A lot to consider here for policymakers
0: and also for us eaters. Gary and Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us.
1: I'm going to go Thank home you. have my lentils. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dr Kate Sievert is a research fellow in food systems and Gary Sachs is a professor of public health policy, both from Deakin University. And yes, it's pulses for dinner tonight,
1: Norman. Absolutely. Slow cooked, slow cooked with lots of herbs. Well, that's it for this week.
0: We'll see you next week.